chapter 1, verses 8 through 19 will be our passage for this morning. We're continuing in that section of Proverbs that is, uh, in my estimation, still introductory. The first six verses of Proverbs chapter 1 were given some insight as to the purpose and the function of Proverbs, how they work, what they're intended to do. We stated last week that Proverbs are to help us to make good choices, to live a wise fruitful, successful life without compromising our integrity in the process. Verse 7 sets the theological foundation for the wisdom contained in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. What we know of God, how we live in light of the presence of God in our life is a determining factor in the decisions that we make and the wisdom that we receive. Now in verses 8 through 19, there is this fatherly invitation that we heed the wisdom of this book, thus bringing an end to our introduction here. We'll not move in this verse-by-verse way through all of the book of Proverbs. The book as a whole is not given to such an approach, but for the next few weeks, we'll go step-by-step through these initial verses and chapters. We mentioned last week that Proverbs acts as something of a curriculum for mothers and fathers in their efforts at fulfilling the call of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me unpack that for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says to the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And in the passage that follows after, the nation of Israel is instructed as a people as to how they're to pass down to their children and their grandchildren The story of how God has moved in history for their salvation. How he came to them, having heard their cry and distress in Egypt. And how he brought them out through the Exodus event. And made of that fledgling people, a nation, the nation of Israel. God says in that passage, you make sure that your children and your grandchildren, the generations to come, do not forget the story of how I have been at work in history for the salvation of my people. And how I've bound myself to them in covenant relationship that they would walk in my precepts. From an Old Testament perspective, what we might say of Proverbs is that Proverbs helps the people of Israel to see how what God had done in history for their salvation is not an exclusively spiritual enterprise, but has impact or influence in every area of their life. We might state it this way from this side of the cross under the new covenant that God has established with a people of every tongue and tribe and nation. As parents, as believers, we are to invest the message of the gospel in the next generation and the next generation. To see to it that our children nor children to come forget the story of what God has done in history to save a people all his own. How he sent his son to live in sinless perfection. How Christ, the son of God, died on the cross. And how he rose again on the third day. But we want you to know more than just the historical facts of what God has done in history. To know further that God's act of salvation through his son Jesus is not an exclusively spiritual enterprise. But has bearing on every aspect of our life. There is not a crack or crevice of our life that is not to be influenced by the message of the gospel. Proverbs helps us to observe how it is the implications of the gospel bear themselves out 
and what we might consider to be obscure corners of our life. This is the gist of Solomon's attempt under the inspiration of the Spirit in the book of Proverbs. Now, there's some family language or fatherly language in verses 8 and 9 that contribute to my perception that Solomon intends Proverbs to work hand-in-hand with the instruction of Deuteronomy 6. You'll see what I mean as we read along. If you found your way to Proverbs 1 and verse 8, would you join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word? Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching. There'll be a garland of grace on your head and a gold chain around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack some innocent person just for fun. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol, still healthy as they go down into the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us, and we'll all share our money. My son, don't travel that road with them or set foot on their path, because their feet run toward trouble, and they hurry to commit murder. It's foolish to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. It takes the lives of those who receive it. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. You see the language of mother and father, son, by implication daughter, more broadly children, in verses 8 and 9. Again, Solomon has as a part of the focus, at least, the idea of older people, parents specifically, instructing their children. Proverbs has a great deal to say about this, about the influence that parents stand to bear. most famous verse in the book of Proverbs with regards to raising children or the family unit, perhaps, is Proverbs 22.6. Raise up a child or train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. There's a couple of different ways of looking at that passage, but we can draw out the principle, regardless of how you see it, that in general, principally, proverbially, When we invest the message of the gospel and the principles of righteousness in our children, there'll come a point of time where they appreciate those principles of righteousness. God pursues them and they submit to his lordship over their life and walk in the ways of righteousness. This is not universally true. There are moms and dads who do all that they can and somehow along the way, kiddos go astray. But in general, in that way that Proverbs intends to to convey truth, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. There are consistent exhortations for moms and dads to encourage their children in the ways of righteousness and consistent encouragements in the book of Proverbs that their efforts at instilling principles of righteousness will not go unnoticed by the host of heaven. You heard from Joe Franks in our ministry impact highlight time. That's the pseudonym that she has been assigned, and it will probably be the name that I use to refer to her for the rest of her life. I can remember one of the first conversations that I had in coming to Longview Point now over four years ago with a gregarious mother and a caring father who came to me and said, Pastor Wade, would you please pray for our daughter, Joe Franks? She has lost her bloom in mind. And she had, 
She had. It was a fair assessment. And God has honored over the course of time the concerns of a caring father and the love of a gregarious mother. And you see the young lady that was brought before you this morning being commissioned to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Moms and dads, do not shrink back from your responsibilities as parents at investing the message of the gospel in your children, even in your frustration when it seems as though, when it feels as though they don't hear anything that you have to say. Keep faithfully plotting, trusting the proverbial principle that when they are old, they will not forget. I have a four, a 15, and an 18-year-old. Let me tell you the secret blessing of having an 18-year-old child. They're finally beginning to get old enough to realize that their father was not the brain-dead moron they always thought he was, <laughs> right? Like you're entering into adulthood and beginning to experience some things about life in reality apart from the idealism of teenage life in those high school years, and you can almost see the, the light bulbs flashing on as they realize, my parents actually do know what they're talking about at least some of the time. There's something in childhood where we instinctively revolt against the instruction of our parents. Proverbs 1 is a warning against such instinctive rebelliousness. Verse 8, the Bible says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and don't reject your mother's teaching. Listen, my son, children, young people. Hear the literal words of our God. Do not reject your father's teaching, nor spurn the instruction of your mother. They are not crazy people. They have not lost their mind. They actually know something about life. There's a reason they say don't do what they say don't do. And there's a reason they say do the things that they're instructing you to do. But we need not limit this kind of discipleship, this kind of investment of wisdom in the next generation to mothers and fathers and their children. The language is operating metaphorically in our passage. In other words, there is a much broader application of what's being expressed here than just the father-son or daughter-son, daughter-mother-daughter uh, uh, dynamic. For many of you, it was not a mother or father biologically, but in, as in, was the case in my case, a grandmother or maybe even someone outside of your family that was a key spiritual influence in your life. The idea here is of older people who are investing in the wisdom needs of younger people who don't yet have the same level of experience that they have. Verse 9 goes on to say that their instruction, their teaching, will be a garland of grace on your head and a gold chain around your neck. Give yourself to this teaching. Relish the opportunity to glean from their wisdom. Solomon is, in effect, encouraging us in the book of Proverbs and even in these two verses to look to four types of instruction. Let me run them down for you just quickly. Over and over and over again, the book of Proverbs extols parental wisdom. No one knows us like our parents. Their insight ought to be invaluable to us. They have been where we are at the present. They have walked where we are walking. They've experienced some things in life. Look to their insight. Look to their instruction. It's an unfortunate thing that you have to say such things, but given the state of our society, it's probably important that we note that there are exceptions to this. 
There are, unfortunately, parents who are hell-bent on the misleading or destruction of their children in some warped and deluded kind of way, but proverbially, in the general sense, heed the counsel of mothers and fathers. Solomon is effectively pointing us here to experienced instruction, people who've been through some things, people who've had some experiences. Occasionally, someone will come to me and ask, I've been offered an opportunity or I've been asked to volunteer within the body to provide instruction in some way. Given all of the things that have happened in my past, can I, can I really be a suitable instructor in, in this way? Listen, if God is looking for perfect servants to serve in various capacities, he's going to come up empty at Longview Point. They don't exist here. David would say in the Psalms, God, forgive me of my sin, and then I'll show sinners your way. In other words, I'm going to avail myself of the opportunity my mistakes in the past has provided for me to instruct others in the future that they not go the way that I have gone. Sometimes the best lessons are learned from bad examples. Don't be timid about expressing frustrations you have with yourself or difficult decisions that you've made in life that have yielded negative consequences. Experienced instruction is invaluable. One of the ways I think we've hamstrung ourselves as churches over the past 50 or 70 years is by setting up all of our efforts at discipleship groups or Sunday school, as it was referenced in a previous generation, all of our efforts at small group gatherings, regardless of their titling, has ordinarily happened according to peer groups. We'll put all of this age together. We'll put all of this age together. We'll get them all in their separate rooms and they'll be able to talk about things that are relevant to their station in life. The problem with that is we don't usually learn the, the most helpful lessons from people who are our age. I don't learn a lot from people my age. I want to talk to people who are older than me, who've seen some stuff, who've been through some things. As Fred Sanford said, you don't get to be old being a fool. I, I want to hear from people who've had some experiences in life that I can personally glean from. Proverbs celebrates experienced instruction and wisdom consistently throughout the book. And that's what metaphorically the mother and father relationship are about. Solomon encourages us to seek righteous instruction. The idea of this parental instruction being a garland of grace on our head and a gold chain on our neck is the, is the language that Proverbs chooses to use to speak of a good name, of a good reputation, of a person bearing good character and having a good integrity across the span of, of their life. Look to those who are excelling in righteousness and then model after that. Listen, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reader of books. I love to read. I'm a believer in preaching. God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise of this world. I believe preaching is effective and necessary and helpful for the body of Christ. But there is so much to be gained from living alongside people who are walking faithfully with Jesus, modeling the principles of the, of the sermon. That's an effective way of discipleship. You've heard me make mention of my home church pastor and his wife and how influential they were in our life, Brandy and I, as a new couple and then as new parents. I heard all of his sermons and I had read a whole lot of books, 
But to see it in real time, in real action, was an invaluable experience for us in understanding how to be a Christian husband and wife, how to be Christian parents, how to walk in righteousness in this new place we found ourselves in life. Look to righteous instruction. Here's the fourth thing. Look for profitable instruction. In other words, look, look to those within your life within your field, your vocation, within your area of ministry, within your sport, within your hobby, within your academic interest field. Look to those who are successful in those areas. And as much as is permissible by virtue of your circumstance or your personality, seek to emulate what they do. It was, a, it was an incredibly intimidating thing for me, sensing God's call to pastor to think that I now need to stand in a pulpit in front of people and to open the Bible and to teach. It had never been a problem for me to be in front of people. I used to rather enjoy as a teenager doing what I called holding court, which is when you gather a bunch of people around at a party or a get together and you basically cut up and people are entertained by that. That was kind of my thing. I'm, I'm all about that, but it's different. When you stand and you open the book and you say, thus saith the Lord, I, I would be so nervous. I would be so anxious before preaching. When you start preaching, you start by filling pulpits in different churches. I would come early enough that I knew all of the people were in Sunday school so I could just stand behind the pulpit and practice looking out across that room so that my anxiety would reduce enough that they could not hear my voice quiver when it came time to preach. The other trick, by the way, is you sneak in while no one's in the room and you turn the thermostat up in these churches that are 40 degrees on a Sunday morning. You couple a cold temperature with a little nervousness and I would almost vibrate off the platform in anxiety. So I just began to look at, at, at brothers who were faithful in the task of preaching. Be a, a brother over here did a really good job with exegesis. A brother over here did a really good job with application. Another brother who did a really good job with an, with an invitation and inviting people to respond to the gospel. And as much as it was appropriate to my personality and the circumstances fit to begin to emulate their practices in my preaching ministry. And before long, you sort of become who you are and you're helped and encouraged by the examples that others are setting. There is no area of life where this kind of model does not work. There are just lessons that are far better learned in the laboratory of life than you can ever learn seated in a classroom. There are lessons that you cannot learn reading from books, but you can read them well in the countenance of faithful people as they interact with others or perform a task assigned to them. Look to those who are profitable or successful or fruitful in a given area of life and look to emulate, to learn from their experience. So that's the positive, right? Listen to good counsel. It's the basic commandment of verses 8 and 9. But the flip side of that is that you not listen to ungodly counsel. You want to listen to good counsel. You want to stay away from ungodly counsel. This is a lesson that we learn in childhood, and I'm convinced is almost intuitive for us. But we have a way of suppressing the truth of God at work in our heart. As children, we learn the American proverb, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. 
Or as my granny's favorite said, if you lie with dogs, you will get fleas. We have all sorts of colloquial ways of warning children about the negative influences of ungodly people around them. And somehow, as adults, we assign that kind of counsel to childhood as though we are immune to such influence in adulthood. Now, I live in preacher world, and so a lot of expressions of unrighteousness run when I enter, enter the room. But there are still people in my circle, friends that I care deeply for, who have certain characteristics, certain personality traits that I find to be less than incredibly helpful. I have a dear friend who is among the most negative people that I know in this world. And I can catch myself if I spend too much time in conversation with this brother. I begin to get negative about all sorts of things. I can forecast the next few weeks for my kids on the basis of who they're spending time with. And often for adults, I can forecast the next few years of your life on the basis of who you're drawing near for counsel and instruction. I think sometimes people think that the pastor is concerned when we're not in church because he wants people to be in church. It's job security. No, there's a deeper underlying spiritual concern. When you begin to see adults withdrawing from the body of Christ, it's usually a gravitational pull toward the kind of counselors who will affirm them in the unrighteousness that they've elected to give themselves to in that particular season of life. When you see people, whether they be believers or unbelievers, drawing themselves into the body of Christ, wanting to gather together with those who've identified with Christ, there's usually something in their experience that's awakened them to the realities of this very passage, that's helped them to come to the sober realization that if I continue on this path of unrighteousness, it is only going to end for me in destruction. There's a want a hunger, a thirst for righteousness that they seek to have satisfied in some way. Even if they don't understand completely the means of satisfaction, there's a hunger and thirst for that that compels them to surround themselves with people who at least by outward appearances are attempting at some measure of righteousness. Verse 10, the Bible says, My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded five principles with regards to the wicked that we might observe in these verses. I'm going to run them down quickly here. The first I want you to note here in verse, uh, verse 10, rather, is that the wicked are actively recruiting. Verse 11 says, if they say, come with us, let's set an ambush, and their persuasion ensues. We say at times that if you're not discipling your children, the world will. But it might be better stated in the present tense, if you're not discipling your children, the world is. And if you're not enjoying the earnest study of God's word and prayerfully devoting yourself to fellowship with Jesus Christ, the world is actively discipling you. Wickedness, like misery, loves company. And here the invitation is on, my son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack some innocent person just for fun. Let's swallow them alive like shields, still healthy as they go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we'll all share our money. 
the violence involved in the example that's used here in Proverbs 1 may lead you to think that this is not the kind of enticement that I would ever succumb to. I mean, I've done a lot of bad things, but murder and robbery are not on the list, right? But notice how, even in this over-the-top, hyperbolic, violent example, all of the basic human needs appealed to by the enticement to sin are cited. Come throw in your lot with us. Come be a part of the group, and we'll all have lots of money. There's a want for material gain. There's a want for social acceptance, a want to be a part of the in crowd. It's couched in verse 11 as something that will be entertaining, something that will be fun. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol, still healthy as they go down to the pit. This is not the kind of thing that normal people would regard as fun or entertaining. But there's something about being swept into the group, being a part of this collective effort and the sense of sense of acceptance that can come with that, that is enticing, that has a powerful allure. And even those of you who are grown-ups, families and houses and cars who pay bills, there can be the sometimes difficult to discern pressures of being on the inside, accepted, celebrated, affirmed, rewarded with material gain that can entice in powerful, powerful ways. Not only are the wicked actively recruiting, verse 12 helps us to note that they regard all of life as this zero-sum game. You know what I mean when I say zero-sum game? In a zero-sum game, the only way for a person to get ahead is for someone else to be at a deficit. They see that as the way forward. The wicked throughout the book of Proverbs are regarded as those who see life as a zero-sum game. I'm going to get ahead by stepping on the backs of those who stand in my way. Rather than focusing on my personal improvement, success in my own particular lane, fruitfulness in my personal life, I'm going to focus rather on diminishing the accomplishments of those around us, taking what now is not mine, but will be hopefully someday. I'm going to improve my position, not by making a personal effort to get ahead, but by ensuring that everyone else moves behind. The difference in the wicked and the righteous in regard to getting ahead is simply one of perspective. Proverbs extols and celebrates financial success and sound investment. Prosperity, in general, is celebrated in the book of Proverbs, but only in so much as it's not motivated by greed and exclusive self-interest, only in so much as it's not focused on diminishing the achievements of those around or taking what does not rightfully belong. I try to steer clear of most things Political, and I I think that's wise. Most things political are just generally icky. But I would point out for you, and I would encourage you to observe along the way how the principles of capitalism are celebrated in the book of Proverbs and how the principles of socialism are decried as evil and wicked. Within the socialist system, all of life is a zero-sum game. The way we create equality is not by a rising tide that lifts all boats, but by diminishing the accomplishments of those who are most accomplished in order that those who are the least accomplished can feel better about their meager accomplishments. The idea here is that we're focused not on diminishing the accomplishments of those around us or taking what does not rightfully belong to us, but by working hard 
investing soundly. Pursuing a scenario in which we're able to well meet the needs of our children and our grandchildren, those who are entrusted to our care. For the wicked, all of life is this zero-sum game. Note the source of their financial security or wealth. We'll kill him, we'll throw him into the pit, and we'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. There's a drive on the part of the wicked of being driven by greed. There's a fourth thing here I want you to see, and I think this is really important because it's at work all around us. The wicked are really good at using group think to their advantage. Look at verse 14. Throw in your lot with us, and we'll all share our money. You know what group think is? Group think is this psychological phenomenon where we have a tendency to just do what people around us do. It occurred to me this week that Proverbs is really about teaching adults the basic principles we learn in childhood in a rather adult way so that we remember them and make application of them in adult ways. How many of you have heard from your parents, if everyone jumped off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge too? I said that thing, that, that proverb came out of my mouth to one of my children this week. But we do it, right? If you're ever out, ever out in public and there's a lot of people moving around, you're at a concert, you're at some kind of venue, the airport, it works really well coming off an airplane. And it's clear that people don't know where they're going. You can just walk in a random direction and do it confidently and people just follow after you. It's funny. We're wired this way. We just go in the direction of the people who look like they're headed in the right direction, whether they know where they're going or not. If you really want to get ahead, you go in the opposite direction of baggage claim, and then you circle back because you actually know where you're going and everyone else is on the other side of the terminal. It works. We've got to resist this. And our culture, the world in which we are living in, is really, really effective at using groupthink to the advantage of this world's system. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about the ethical teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Someone compels you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Do unto others, not as they do to you, but as you would have them to do to you. There is a common ethical thread that runs through all of those teachings, and here it is. As followers of Jesus, we don't allow ourselves to be influenced by the circumstances of life or the people around us. We follow with, with absolute allegiance and singular focus the Lord Jesus Christ. If everyone around us is doing wrong in the name of Jesus, we are to do what is right. When the crowds, when the mob, when the masses are headed in the wrong direction, we will fix our eyes on Jesus and we will follow after him as loyal subjects of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. We don't give ourselves to groupthink. We don't give ourselves to mob mentality. We don't find ourselves swept up in the crowd when everyone is doing wrong. We will insist under the authority of Jesus that we must do what is right. There's only one example that I can think of in the Bible where we're encouraged to this kind of groupthink. Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says that given this great cloud of witnesses, we are to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us, fixing our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ, running well the race that has been set 
before us and patterned for us by none other than Jesus himself. It's not those, those physically present in our life. It's the history of those who have stood alone, faithfully following Jesus. When everyone was doing what is wrong, they determined within themselves to do what was right. Let those be the influential voices in your life, rejecting the enticement to sin and heeding the sound wisdom of our God and those who have walked faithfully with him over the duration of their life. The final thing I want you to see about the wicked in these verses is found in verses 15 through 19, and here it is. The way of the wicked always results in destruction. And I want you to hear that, that little axiom, and I, and I, want, you to, I want you to burn that in your memory. The way of the wicked always results in destruction. Verse 15, my son, don't travel that road with them. Set foot on their path because their feet run toward trouble. And they hurry to commit murder. It's foolish to spread a net where any bird can see it. But they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly, takes the lives of those who receive it. In other words, you can choose to heed the enticement to sin, spurning sound wisdom, but it will only end disastrously for you. There's a couple of examples of how this works itself out. As pastor, you find yourself counseling with couples who are on the verge of divorce often. They'll come saying things like, God just wants me to be happy. They'll feel justified in the decision that they're poised to make. And you'll always find them thoroughly convinced that they will somehow be the ones who are able to shirk all of the negative consequences of their decision. Our kids are going to be fine. They understand. We've talked to them. They're going to do a week at mom's and a week at dad's as though that doesn't have psychological effect. But we're going to be the ones that are going to avoid all of those detrimental consequences. I've, I've grown stern in time pastoring and trying to counsel through and shepherd under those circumstances. And I've, I've developed this approach, especially with regards to husbands who have made such decisions of just coming to a point of frustration in the session and leaning over and saying, all right, I hear you, and I, I know what you want to do, and so you just go do it. But here's what I'm going to tell you. In 18 to 24 months, some other man is going to be tucking your baby girl in at night. So go ahead. You think you have convinced yourself that you're going to be the exception to the rule, that you won't bear the consequences of your sin, but inevitably you will. There is no sterile, isolated environment that is free from what is written in the constitution of God's economy. The wicked will always end in destruction, and the ways of the wicked will always lead to destruction. This is an inviolable principle. It's as hard and fast as anything you'll find in the book of Proverbs. It will always end in disaster. Verse 19 says, and such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. As a new believer, you usually have more zeal than you have wisdom. That was certainly the case for me. I think you got it all figured out, right? Now, I can remember one of the first real ethical dilemmas that I had as a new believer living in my grandparents' home. My grandfather was not a believer, was not a believer at the time of, of his death. And so that created a fairly uh, ongoing tension uh, between he and I, me living as a believer in their home with my feet under his table to eat, you do what your grandfather tells you to do. 
He seemed to take this uh, certain delight in me doing all of the work around the place. And uh, you can tell I'm not bitter by that, about that at all. And, uh, and there was this, an episode where a tree fell on the end of the house. The tree fell and there was minimal damage. But he had come up with a way of, uh, of, of separating the insurance company from a certain amount of money. And I was going to do the work involved in order for him to secure that money. Now, here's the ethical dilemma. My grandfather had told me to do this thing, and he fed me. And on the other side, I knew this to be a, a, an unethical thing to do and a, a wrong thing to do. This was not a good thing to do. And I can remember saying to him, I'm going to do what you told me to do because you told me to do it, but I want you to know it will never work out for you. I can remember the day the check came in the mail. He was sitting in his chair, and he opened that check. I walked through the living room with a smirk on my face. He knew what the smirk intended. This will not work out for you. And I can remember doing the job, the check coming in, and I can remember the week after when catastrophe struck, a piece of equipment went down that cost him exactly two times the amount of that check he had scammed from the insurance company. Now, there's really no respectful way to say, I told you so to your grandpa. So I'm not entirely sure it was respectful. But I had to take the opportunity to say, I told you so. And what I'm saying to you this morning is this. There are those of you in this congregation, I have zero doubt, who are playing with sin. You are trifling with unrighteousness. You're dabbling in the things of this world. And you have convinced yourself that you're going to be the outlier. You're going to be the one that goes untouched, unaffected, unfazed by the consequences of your sin, and you are fooling yourself. You're looking at the ways of this world. You're looking at your lane. You're looking at your life and the circumstances that have contributed to this moment and this decision, this crossroads juncture of your life. And you feel in your very heart of hearts that in spite of what the Bible says, this is the direction that I should go. And I would warn you of the wisdom of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right in the heart of man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This will not end well for you. There is only disaster and destruction to come. Young people, heed the counsel of your parents. When they tell you to do something, they know what they're talking about by experience. When they say, don't do this, they tell you because it's only going to end in destruction. And adults, parents, and grandparents, heed the wisdom of God's word. When God warns us against certain action, it's not because he's the wicked taskmaster who seeks to dominate our lives and rob us of joy. It's because he knows what is best for his people. Have you considered the distinct possibility that God knows better about being God of your life than you know yourself? There's a way that seems right. The end thereof are the ways death. Some of you have settled in your mind that what you do is okay, where you're headed is okay, you're better than most. You have your own self-styled theological system. I'm a good person. Go to a church service every now and then. Provide for the needs of my kids. I don't do anything that really hurts anybody, at least as far as anyone can tell. Surely God is pleased with me. Surely I'm going to heaven when this life is over. Dear friend, I want you to know that the end of your self-styled theological system is death and destruction. There is but one way to heaven. There is but one man of righteousness. There is but one who has personified wisdom in perfection, and his name is Jesus. 
The whole concept of an end that leads to destruction is taken up by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what he said? There's a broad way, a wide path. There are many that go thereby, but its end is destruction. On the other hand, there's a straight gate and a narrow way, but the end thereof are the ways of life. Jesus beckons this morning that we would come to him. What you'll see as we progress in our study of the book of Proverbs is that wisdom is featured as a lady that invites us to receive her. Wisdom cries out that we would possess and practice wisdom in all of our life. And in the same way, the Lord of all the earth cries out that we would receive him and walk in the wisdom that he's modeled for us in his earthly ministry and the righteousness with which he lords over all creation. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, for the wisdom we find here. God, I pray that you would hide these principles of wisdom in our heart, that we might redeem the time for the days are evil, that we might walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, that we might be holy even as you are holy, that we might enjoy your favor, good success and fruitfulness in all of life without compromising in any way the integrity that you've enabled in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.